your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 20. And we come again to our text verses this evening of verses 11 through 15, which describes without doubt one of the most serious solemn scenes that are fa- is found in the Bible. Now, this is a book, Revelation is a book that's filled with spectacular events. I mean, there are really some eye-popping, unimaginable scenes that are described here in Revelation. Some of the word pictures that we have are just simply glorious. They, they defy imagination. And some of this is just absolutely thrilling as you read it. And to think about how John must have felt when he was given this revelation, in the first chapter it tells us that John heard a voice behind him that sounded like a trumpet. And he turned around to see who that voice was, who was speaking to him. And the voice said, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And when John turned around to look at him, he saw one like the Son of Man. And that is a term that's used uh, particularly talking about the glorious aspect of Jesus Christ. He's called the Son of Man. That has eschatological implications to it. And he saw the Son of Man... And he said he had hair as white as snow and eyes that were like a flaming fire. And John was so stunned at that that he fell to his, to his feet, like, a, like to his knees like a dead man. And then the Lord touched him and told him not to be afraid. And I'm sure that that was a goosebump moment. I mean, if there ever was a goosebump moment, that was it. And so that began a rapidly unfolding vision of just incredibly unbelievable sights. Well, we come to this 20th chapter, and in a different way, this is spectacularly awesome what we read here. Now, in this part of the Scripture, you don't see the pains of a novelist trying to describe a scene and trying to put you right into the middle of that scene. Instead, John is very short here. He, he's very unusual and his lack of detail as he describes this. But that lack of detail is only noticeable because we realize we don't actually need it. The, the significance of this, the gravity of what takes place in these scriptures is very apparent to us. So in a very few words, John describes this scene. In verse number 11, he says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now what we see here is God's final judgment. This is his courtroom. This is where justice is dispensed. And all who stand before God at this judgment will receive the just penalty of their sins. In any other setting, you would expect that you would find people that would cry out for the justice of God. God, please give me justice. And we know there are lots of people that think when things go wrong in the world that they want justice to be done and they want God to take care of some kind of problem for them. But here is a scene in a courtroom where people are not pleading for justice because the last thing that they ever want is for God to give them justice. But perfect justice is the only kind of justice that God can give. 
Justice flows out of the character of God. It's not an ethical standard for God. God is not just because we expect him to be just, even though we do expect that. But God is just because he always does what is right. He is the source of justice. His nature actually prevents him from doing anything otherwise than giving perfect justice. You know, I remember when we were children that we would often sing the song, God can do anything but fail. And that's a true, it's true, God can do anything but fail, but fail covers a lot of things. And, and uh, there's actually a lot of things that God can't do besides fail. Now, if you want to use fail in the sense that God can never be anything less than what his nature dictates, then fail would be a perfectly acceptable word. For instance, God could never fail in righteousness, and God can never fail in wisdom, and God can never fail in holiness. He cannot fail also in his justice. God is never going to do anything that's not right. Abraham summed that up in a conversation that he had with God just prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so here is the judge of heaven and earth doing what's right. And that is that those people who have not had their sins punished by death's Uh, Christ's death on the cross will have to bear the punishment of their sins themselves. Now, uh, believe me, that is a statement that opens up a whole other theological debate that we're not going to tackle tonight. But let me suffice to say this, that anyone who has not trusted Christ will be at this judgment, and they will be condemned for their sins. This is the final judgment that covers the entire length of human history. From the very first unrepentant sinner, who was Cain, Cain will be at this judgment. In the days of Noah, God destroyed the world, and there were only eight people that were saved from the flood. And all those people that perished in the flood are going to be at this judgment. Right after the judgment, Nimrod built a city that he called, or a kingdom called Babel, and Nimrod will be at this judgment. Pharaoh and his army that pursued after Moses and chased them right down into the Red Sea, and God caused the sea to come back over them and drown them all. Pharaoh and that entire army is going to stand before God at this judgment. The, the sins of the sons of Korah, or the men, the sons of Korah that rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and then the earth opened up and swallowed them, they're also going to be at this judgment. And then you keep counting all of those up and you go through the Old Testament and you read all the stories of people that persecuted the the children of God, people that hated God's people. They're all going to be at this judgment. And when you come into the New Testament time, Herod is going to be at the judgment and Judas and Caiaphas and Pilate, they're all going to be at this judgment. And then you follow that all the way through the history of the church and you see how God's people have been persecuted from the time that Christ began the church. And you come down through the popes of Rome that that gave consent and gave orders for true Christians to be burned at the stake and tortured in the Inquisition. Those popes are going to be at this judgment. And then you consider all the mass murderers that we've known in history, in recent history. Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, Saddam Hussein... They're going to be at this judgment. And so the most famous people and some of the most infamous people are going to be at the judgment. And then you can, you know, you could show up at that judgment and you could gawk at them all that you want. I don't recommend that you go there because you probably won't be too concerned about what happens to them. It's more important about what happens to you if you're at this judgment. 
And so we tend to think that these are the types of people that God is going to judge, and those are the ones that God is going to condemn. All of those people that we saw in the Old Testament that defied God, we mentioned Pharaoh, and we mentioned the sons of Korah, and we mentioned uh, all of these other people. We talk about the New Testament, Herod, Pilate, and all of those, Judas himself. And we tend to think that those are the kinds of people that are going to be at the great white throne. Those are the ones that are going to stand before God. And we don't tend to think that the people that will be there at that judgment is the person sitting next to me at work. And the people that are going to be at the judgment are people that I've gone to school with. And they're people that are my good friends. And some of them could be included among my brothers, my sisters, my children, my mom, or my dad. But that is the scene at the great white throne judgment. Everyone who has not trusted Christ is going to be there. And they stand before God condemned. And so verse number 14 is a reality for each and every person who is there. Now let me just quickly give you the previous points of the message this evening. We first of all talked about the contrast of the throne. The great white throne is not the throne of God in heaven. Now the heavenly throne is described in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and there we learn that that throne is a majestic throne, and surrounding that throne is an emerald-colored rainbow. Before it, there's a sea of glass that's clear as crystal, In that throne room are angelic creatures that are unceasingly praising the holiness of God. There's a deafening roar that takes place there as thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands of angels and redeemed men cry out, Worthy is the Lamb. Now that throne is God's ruling throne. But we're not talking about that throne. This is the throne of judgment. Now those that are in the heavenly throne room have been judged already in Christ. There is no personal judgment for them because Christ was judged for them at the cross. All of their sins have been taken care of, been taken care of. They're covered under the blood of Christ. They are not condemned. The scripture says there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment for those that are in Christ Jesus. But the great white throne is different. It's a white throne and that stands for the absolute pure justice of God. And it's a great throne. And that might refer to the proportions of it. The size of it might be great. But more importantly is the great significance of what takes place there. There's never been a judgment like this. There's never been as many people in a courtroom as this. There's never been such devastating consequences as what happens in this courtroom. And then we looked at, secondly, the countenance of the judge. Heaven and earth flee away from his face. And we're going to talk a little bit more in just a moment about the significance of that statement. But we discuss the identity of this one who sits on the throne. Who is it that sits on the throne? Well, this is God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And so God is sitting on that throne, and it's Christ that sits on the throne. God is in the person of Christ because he's the one who has experienced what man has gone through. He identifies with man. And so there's no one who could say, well, God doesn't understand my sin. God doesn't know the difficulties I've had. God doesn't understand what it's like to be a man. But God does understand because God was right there in the person of Jesus Christ. He was in the world and he experienced all that men experience. So there is no excuse. 
Because not only did Christ live without sin, but knowing that man couldn't do that, he offered himself for sin. He gave himself that we might be freed from our sin. And so these are people that have rejected that offering of Christ. Now I want to go a little bit further tonight and consider verse number 11 again. Where John says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. What does John mean by the earth and the heaven fled away from his face, and there was found no place for them? Well, thirdly, we want to talk about the consumption of the creation. The earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And what you're looking at there is a description of the disappearance of the entire universe into nothingness. The earth, the solar system, our sun, the moon, the galaxy that we're in, to the farthest extents of the universe known and unknown, all vanishes into nothingness. God who created everything by speaking it into existence speaks it out of existence. Now see, everything in the visible world is created by God and created out of material substances. I mean, everything in the creation is a material substance, I should say. They're made up of elements. Now, the atoms are the elements. Atoms are elements, and those are grouped together, as you know, into with other atoms into molecules, and that's how we determine what everything is. I mean, how those molecules combine, that is actually the substance of everything. And so whether we're speaking about the, this podium here that I'm standing behind tonight, or whether we're talking about the carpet that's on the floor, or the curtain over there, the walls, or whether we're talking about Bob sitting back there somewhere, all of us are made of this substance, these, these molecules, these atoms, these elements And we are created in a certain way. Things are created in a certain way till they appear the way that they are. God created all of those things ex nihilo. That means he created it out of nothing. Now before God created the universe, there was nothing that existed but God. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 33, 9 says, For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Hebrews 11, verse 3, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And so when we read Genesis 1-1, where the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, then we understand that God did not create anything that was made out of the already existing materials. God is the only thing that existed. And then God spoke, and then the universe was created. Now, since the creation, God has rearranged some things. The world that we live in now is not like the antediluvian world. That is the world before the flood. It's not like that, and that's why you can't go to a map and find out where the Garden of Eden is. In the tribulation time, uh, the Bible teaches that God is going to change the topography and the geography of the earth. The mountains are going to be flattened out. Islands are going to disappear from the sea. But this world, although it has gone through many physical changes, and it will go through many more, is still a world that's been cursed by sin. Even in the millennial kingdom, 
there's not a complete end to the curse of sin. And we know that because we've studied how that Satan is loosed, how he goes out and he deceives the nations once again, and that's proof that the old sinful Adamic nature is alive and operating in the world. It's well in the earth. And so when the final perfect judgment on sin comes then this world that has been infected by sin, a world that's been ravished by sin, will not be allowed to exist forever. God has to destroy it. God is not going to have a world that is eternally existent as a, in a state of sin, as a sinful place. And so it's not God's intention to do that. And so we're looking here at a scene at the great white throne judgment that takes place after everything has been destroyed. Now, what is it that God destroys? Well, first, God destroys matter. Matter is destroyed. And we're not talking here about a rearrangement of molecules. Everything in the physical universe is destroyed. Now, we know the spiritual is not destroyed because there are still angels. There are still redeemed men. Those are in heaven. There are the spirits of evil men because here they are standing before the throne of God. So they are not destroyed. Their bodies have already been resurrected out of the earth before it's destroyed. And those bodies are brought up and rejoined with the soul. They are made into an indestructible body so that soul and body will then spend eternity in hell. Now, if you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, there is an important discussion that relates to the scene that we have in Revelation 20. And in the seventh verse of 2 Peter chapter 3, It says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store. That is the same word that God used to create all of the earth. He keeps this earth in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now that verse is telling us that God is going to preserve the heavens and the earth until the time comes for him to destroy it, just before this great white throne judgment. And so you don't have to worry about man blowing up the earth. You don't have to worry about destroying life on the planet. You don't have to worry about us running out of food and and then everything's going to collapse into nothing. You don't have to worry about freezing to death. and You don't have to worry about global warming and all that. None of those things are going to end the world. God is going to preserve this world until he's ready to judge it. And this world will not go out of existence in something, I mean, by a nuclear holocaust. We need not worry that man is going to destroy the world with nuclear bombs. The earth is not going to gradually melt away with the global warming. The destruction of the earth, the Bible teaches, is going to come suddenly, and it will come in a great cataclysm. And verse number 10 in 2 Peter 3 tells us this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, whenever you see in the Bible this statement, the day of the Lord, that's always something that's associated with God as he acts in judgment. And so his judgment, according to this verse, is going to be swift. It's going to come suddenly or it comes unexpectedly like a thief in the night. And you'll notice that Peter says... The elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now, elements means the constituent parts. That means the substance of which everything is made. And what are those things? Well, they're the atoms. They're 
parts of atoms and some things that scientists don't even know exist, perhaps. You know, they keep discovering smaller and smaller parts of of the atom itself, smaller particles. But this is a word that means just that. Whatever those parts are, those elements are going to cease to exist. Peter says that the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And that's an onomatopoeic word, which simply means that that word that he used imitates the sound. It's a word like whiz. So this is going to sort of like a... It's all gone. I mean, it's all gone out of existence. So whatever is, is no more. It's not reduced to ashes, but completely gone out of existence. There is no trace of it any longer. No even, no even way to even know that it existed. What is, is gone. And so at the great white throne, everything that's in the universe that is physical is gone. The creation and the universe is no more. In Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus said the same thing. He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And then in Hebrews, it tells us that the God who created all of this transcends everything that he created. He created everything out of nothing, and he can uncreate if he chooses to do so and leave no trace of it. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10 says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. So God is going to take the world, take the universe and fold it up just like an old worn out garment and toss it out. He created it from nothing and when he's done, it goes out and there's nothing. Now what happens then when the universe is gone? What happens when the sun disappears? What happens when the earth is gone? Well, time is destroyed. How did we get time? Genesis 1.14 says... And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. So you take away the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth, then there is no such thing it's time. Now, it's impossible for us to conceive of an existence without time. And I thought about this as I was thinking about Paul's experience when he was caught up in heaven. And there are probably many reasons why that Paul couldn't describe what he saw there. But I thought about perhaps the physical impossibility of Paul trying to describe a place that has no time. How, how do you relate to something that exists without time? Now here John sees a vision of heaven and he sees a a vision of the future but his vantage point is as a man that's on the earth. He sees it all from the vantage point of earth. But Paul was caught up into heaven and he said, I can't describe that. Now we think in terms of time. We speak in time. We move in time. In fact, it's impossible to have movement and spatial existence without time. But here we see here in Revelation chapter 20 that all of it's gone. So what we're actually looking at is a scene that is in eternity. And thinking of it in terms of time, which is the only way we can, then we would say right then is the eternal present. And that's what eternity is. It is the eternal present if you think about it in terms of time. 
And so the great white throne judgment takes place when all of this is gone. There are no people that are left on the earth. There are no people that are being born because there are no people. They're all dead. In verse number 9, it tells us that all the last people that were on the earth during the millennium were destroyed by fire that came down from heaven. And fire came from heaven and devoured them. And then after that, the bodies of all those people and all others in the history of time, in the history of this world, all unrepentant sinners are then raised up from their graves and they're given special bodies fitted for eternal destruction in the fires of hell. Now that leads me to our next observation, which is the call to judgment. Verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Next week, we're going to talk about the books that God judges out of. We'll do that next week. But I want to look at this phrase where John says, I saw the dead, small and great. And there are two questions that I want to answer before we close the study tonight. The first one is, who are they? Who are they? And and I don't want to rehearse the two previous messages that we had on the resurrection. But if you'll look back in verse number 6, the scripture says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So John saw the dead standing before this throne. Now they can't be saved people. Because all the saved people were in the first resurrection. And the first resurrection ended 1,000 years before this time. Now we explained all of that in that message, how the first resurrection covers all the way back from the time that Christ was raised from the dead. It goes on to the uh, rapture and through the tribulation saints when they're raised. And then at the end of the millennium, all of those in that time period, or in the first resurrection. Those are all saved people. And the Word of God says that they are blessed to be in that first resurrection. And the reason they're blessed is because they're not raised to be judged for their sins. They're raised to be taken into heaven because their sins have already been judged in Christ. John five twenty four says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Condemnation means judgment. Same Greek word is translated in the King James Version as both condemnation and judgment. And so the dead at this great white throne must be unbelievers because they have been raised to the resurrection of damnation. Verse number 29 in John 5 says, And shall come forth they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. So there must be two separate resurrections, and that's for all the reasons that we discussed in those previous messages on the, on the resurrection. And so this judgment cannot be a judgment of people that are saved. This is a judgment of eternal damnation. And that's a very important point because there are many people who believe in what's called a general judgment. And that is that all will appear there. Both the saved and the lost will appear at one time before God. But there are no saved people at this judgment. So who are they? Well, John says that they are the small and the great. And he that's a phrase that simply means there is no one who escapes the judgment. No lost person, no matter who they are, is going to escape this judgment. Small and great. Small, 
the most insignificant people that have ever lived, people that have died. We never heard anything about them. We don't know anything about them. And the great, the people that are perhaps the subjects of all of our written history, their religion, their social standing, their wealth, their education, their best morality, or the lack of morality, has no bearing on who's going to be there. You know, sometimes people say that Christianity is for the weak and the ignorant. It's for people that are superstitious, and Christians are just a few bricks short of a full load. Well, you let them say what they want, because you don't have to be smart to get to heaven, do you? You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to go to Harvard. Paul said, where is the wise? 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so there are philosophers and scientists that are racking their brains over the information that I just gave you. The universe was created ex nihilo. Stephen Hawking is still trying to figure that one out. Matter is going to be destroyed. Time will cease to exist. And did you know that both of those things are great debates in the philosophical and scientific world? Is it possible that time could ever cease to exist? Is it possible that matter could cease to exist? Those are arguments that people make today. And they say it can't happen. Well, some of them say it can, but they're arguing between each other. And the, big, the biggest one is over time itself. Could time actually cease to exist? Now, the article that I read you, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, I read about some astronomers that were trying to figure out why they have never found another solar system that's just like ours with millions and trillions of stars and beyond trillions of stars and stars that have solar systems, they have never found a solar system that is exactly like ours, that operates the way that ours does. Well, there's going to be thousands and perhaps millions of those types of people that are trying to figure all those things out. And they're going to be at the great white throne judgment. They are smart people. They're wise, but they're not wise according to God. They have worldly wisdom. And so they'll watch. They'll watch and see this thing happen, something they said could not happen. Time is gone, and the universe is gone. And there they are, conspicuously, all alone, as it were, standing before God's great white throne. So who are they? They're every person from every age, with no exception, those that have not trusted Christ. Now, the final question, and then we'll be through for this evening, where do they come from? I ended that sentence with a preposition. I don't know if that's right. They come from where? Maybe that would be better. The answer is in verse number 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell were delivered up up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Now, when John says that the sea gave up the dead and death and hell were delivered up, That is a reference to the inclusiveness of this judgment. He's simply saying they come from everywhere. Their bodies are raised regardless of the condition that they're in. The worst cases, things that bodies that you would think could never be put back together together again, those are put back together, and God raises those bodies. So Osama bin Laden is going to come up out of the sea, and anybody else that's down there with him, uh, no matter what kind of condition or what happens to, has happened to them, they are raised in this judgment. And so figuring out what the sea is, that, that's not really a huge matter of debate. 
But the second part here, this, this part requires just a little bit more thought. It says death and hell were delivered up. Now, there's a lot of disagreement about what that means. Uh, some, like John Gill, say that death is personified here and that hell means the grave. And so the meaning would be consistent from sea to death to the grave, no matter how people have died. Every type of death is considered here. All of those people are raised. But I think there's actually more that's intended by this word that's translated as hell in the King James Version. Uh, this comes from the word Hades. And the King James translators also translated the Greek word Gehenna as hell in Matthew 10, verse number 28. There Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that's hell there is a different word. That's the word Gehenna. And the word that we have over here in the Revelation that we just read, Revelation chapter 20, is the word Hades. Well... We'll get into a discussion of what that term Gehenna means uh, in, uh, when, when that describes hell. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in another message. But I want to say that I don't think that Hades and Gehenna are actually the same place. William G.T. Shedd wrote a book entitled The Doctrine of Endless Punishment, or that's part of the works of his greater works on dogmatic theology. And he says that uh, these are the same place. It's only that the state of the person is different. And so in his view, Hades is the disembodied state. So these are all spirits. That's where the dead are. And then Gehenna is what it's actually called when the body is reunited with the spirit. And then both of those are burned in the eternal fire. So according to his opinion, it's the same place. It's a literal place of punishment. And Hades becomes Gehenna after the great white throne judgment. And so that means that when a lost person dies, that his soul goes to suffer in Hades. And that after he's called up out of Hades for judgment, the soul is reunited with the body, then cast back into the same place, and then it's called Gehenna. Now that sounds pretty good to me, and I could accept that. And uh, I, I wouldn't differ too strenuously from an opinion like that. But what I really think is more likely is that Hades is actually a different place. That it is a, it is a temporary place of torment. It's a fire, but this is the place where God holds all of those dead that are lost spirits. And they're going to be called up out of that place for judgment. And then they'll be cast into the lake of fire. That's Gehenna, or what we commonly think of as hell. Now, the Bible shows us here that the first inhabitants of this place, of this uh, lake of fire where uh, these people are going to be cast, the very first inhabitants of that place were the Antichrist and the false prophet. And we see that in the 19th chapter in verse number 20. It says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which with he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image, these both were cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So there are the first inhabitants of this place that God has created, this place called hell, this lake of fire. They're the first inhabitants. Well, who's next? Satan is next. He becomes the third occupant of this everlasting fire. That's in verse number 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever. Now, I think we could safely conclude that all of the devil's angels, all the demons are also going to be cast into 
the lake of fire at the same time that Satan is sent there. So you have these inhabitants. You have the Antichrist and the false prophet. You have Satan and all of his demons. And then lastly, follows those who are at the great white throne judgment. Verse 15 says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So where did they come from? Well, all of these came up out of Hades. They were all dead. They had not trusted Christ. Now, if anyone ever thought that there must be a some way, there must be some way to get out of this place of torment, that when you die and you go to this place of torment, there must be some way to get out of there. Well, if you thought that there's some way to get out of there, here it is. Because these people are called up out of Hades, but then they're cast right back in, either to the same place where they have greater capacity for suffering because now their bodies have been rejoined with their spirits, or if you take the position that Gehenna is a separate place, the lake of fire is a different place, then they're cast into a different place where they still have greater capacity for suffering. So either way, it's not a good outcome. If you think you're going to get out, it's only for the judgment. And then these people are cast right back in. So they're going to be in eternal bodies that are made especially for the suffering of hell. Now, that's a frightening thought. John didn't say a lot about it, but what he said is riveting. It's all gone. The universe is annihilated, but what is not gone are these men, are these people, and men standing for all of humankind that is not believers in Jesus Christ. Their souls, their bodies are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Now, next week we're going to come back and look at this uh, again, and we've got a couple more weeks to go on this, and we're going to talk about those books that God judges out of. But I don't want to leave you for right now with an annihilated universe. I mean, that's people, I mean, those things go out of existence, but you know what the Bible follows up with? New heavens and a new earth. God is going to recreate it all. And it's all going to be beautiful. It's all going to be perfect. And it will stay that way forever. And that's a, that's a term of time. But it's no time. It's forever. Figure that out. I, you do that for me. I, I can't do it. I can't think like that. So praise the Lord for that. We know him. And he's going to send us, take us to the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for just the thought of this, that knowing you as our Savior, that we're going to be able to see you, we're going to be with you, we're going to live with you forever. But at the same time, we're brought back here to this passage of Scripture and this terrible, terrible thought that people are dying without Jesus Christ and will be cast into the fires of hell. That is a reality. It's as real as every person sitting in this room tonight. It's as real as this world that we're living in. It's as real as what we're going to do after church and what we're going to do tomorrow. People are going to die and go to hell. And Lord, as we said in message uh, earlier last week, that this thought of hell has turned many Christians around to go out and give the gospel to people knowing that without it, they'll die to go to that awful place. And if we really do believe that, if we really know that friends, family, acquaintances are dying and going to hell, then shouldn't that make us witnesses for the word? Lord, we pray that you'd help our people. And again, we thank you that you have saved us from this. But Lord, help us to give the message that will save the world from this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please